This podcast is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow sells the most inverters in the world. It is now a leading supplier right here in the Americas as well. It has the world's most powerful 250-kilowatt, 1,500-volt string inverter, providing disruptive technology for utility-scale solar and battery projects. Find out more at sungrowpower.com. And don't forget to check out the GTM iOS news app while you're out there buying your new iPhone that just dropped with three cameras on it. The first thing you should download is our news app, and the Android one is coming soon, so stay patient. Or keep up with our reporting the old-fashioned way via newsletter. Sign up for the newsletter at greentechmedia.com newsletters. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM here in Boston. America is a place where if you can dream something, no matter how big or ambitious, you can do it. Unless you're trying to string 700 miles of high-voltage transmission lines from Oklahoma to Tennessee. Our guest this week is author of a new book about the saga that unfolded when a wind energy pioneer tried just that. We're going to talk with Russell Gold of the Wall Street Journal about the transmission bottleneck in America's energy transition. Then two top presidential candidates are calling for a day one ban on fracking and promising to phase out nuclear. What would be the consequences if a Democrat actually put those promises into action? Russell wrote a great book on the fracking boom a few years back, so he's going to help us out with that topic as well. And finally, we're digging into that Jonathan Franzen piece in The New Yorker that everyone is up in arms about. We'll look at why it got so many people, including myself, so hot and bothered. In Washington, D.C., it is our co-host, Catherine Hamilton, the chair of 38 North Solutions. Hello, Catherine. How are you? I'm great. Congress came back today, so now I have to start wearing shoes. (laughs) Although you are coming to us from home today, so uh, you have the option whether or not to wear shoes. (laughs) That's right. In New Mexico this week, traveling for some kind of speaking gig, it's Jigger Shah, the president of Generate Capital. What are you out in New Mexico for? I'm here with my friends at the Energy Foundation, and I'm not wearing shoes. (laughs) In Austin, Texas, it is our guest, Russell Gold, a senior energy reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Russell, welcome. Are you wearing shoes? Absolutely not. I work from home. (laughs) I bet he's wearing bunny slippers. (laughs) I am also not wearing shoes. So look at this, guys. We are uh, we're we're all getting as comfortable as possible. So nestling, kick your feet up. Let's have a long conversation about transmission. Russell is a uh, longtime newspaper reporter. He is a Pulitzer Prize finalist for his reporting on the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. He's got two books under his belt, one on fracking called The Boom, and the latest is Superpower. It's all about this guy named Michael Skelly and his harrowing attempt to build one of the most ambitious energy infrastructure projects in recent history, a series of high-voltage transmission lines, essentially renewable energy extension cords running from Oklahoma to the southeast. And this book is about Skelly's journey and what it tells us about the difficulties of the clean energy transition. So, Russell, you've covered a lot of different energy stories in your day. Why did you zero in on this one? You know, I I actually didn't really set out to write a book about transmission. I I looked around and I wanted to write about the people uh, who were doing something big and ambitious about energy and climate. And, you know, it didn't really matter what they were doing. I I just sort of wanted to understand what it took to throw yourself into a giant project because my sense was that 
the energy trans transition was going to require these big, ambitious ideas and projects. And, you know, I'd sort of been reading a bunch of David McCullough books on the, you know, building of the Brooklyn Bridge and the Panama Canal. And I, I wondered what was the equivalent today. And I looked around and talked to people and uh, people said, oh, you, you got to get down to Houston and talk to this guy named Skelly because what he's trying to do with his company, um, you know, that that's that's the modern equivalent of, uh, you know, building the Brooklyn Bridge. This is a big, ambitious project. And I went down and met him and, you know, his personal story sort of takes you from the, the beginning of the modern renewable uh, movement here in the United States, uh, you know, late 1990s up until today. And I thought, you know, this is a fascinating story. So I threw myself into trans transmission. And how did Skelly get so obsessed with transmission himself? <laughs> well, you know, he, he started off as a wind developer. Um, and he, you know, those first couple wind farms he was building around 2000, 2001 were 20, 25 megawatts. And, you know, by the time he, he sort of finished up his career as a wind developer, he was working with three and 400 uh, megawatt wind farms. But then he looked around and sort of, and said to himself, you know, what's, what's the big challenge? How do we go, you know, even bigger? And he realized that, you know, if, if you wanted to build, three or four gigawatts of wind and, and possibly wind and solar in the middle of the country, you needed to build transmission. Um, you know, there's a, there's a great quote that I recently stumbled across from uh, Jonathan Weisskull, uh, formerly of, of Mid-American Energy Holdings, who said, you can't love renewables and hate transmission. They go together. And Skelly understood that. Well, there are a lot of people who do love renewables and, and hate transmission. And uh, that's partially why this uh, project got derailed. Uh, Jigger, you know, you know, Michael Skelly well. Um, what was his motivation? Who is this guy as you know him? He's a problem solver, right? I mean, here's a guy who got, you know, very fortunate to be able to work for the Zilka family, where, you know, in the renewable energy industry, as you know, raising money every step of the way for development and then the first projects and convincing people, that's really hard, right? Starting off with a pile of money, that's a lot easier. And so he was able to actually use all of his acumen and all of his problem-solving skills to build one of the largest wind farm companies in the United States, right, under Zilka Renewables, which then turned into Horizon Wind, right? And so I think that he, you know, came, came into this industry by being able to be a pure problem-solver and not having to deal with, you know, some of the other, you know, challenges that this industry, you know, uh, throws up against you. Yeah, Russell, one of the questions I had is, you know, we, we've done big projects, big transmission projects, like when uh, FDR, like back in the 30s, did the Rural Electrification Act and the administration to, to give everybody electricity. We were able to do that. But this, you know, Skelly had a really different proposition, which is to use a private developer to do things regionally, which um, I just wonder what you think about that approach and um, how he thought he could be successful as a private developer. Right. Well, he had this, you know, he had this insight, uh, and that was that there was a lot of potential money sitting on the sidelines that would love to invest in these projects if someone could prove that a big transmission project was feasible and could provide a return. You know, he, he wanted to build one or two of these lines, but he was hoping that that would then spur further growth. Um, and so, you know, I think he had a very smart insight, which was that there is a lot of private money out there 
Um, let's see if we can do it. Uh, he partnered with the federal government. He used um, a part of the Energy Policy Act of 2005 that really had never been tested before that allowed a private developer to partner with the federal government and get eminent domain. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, one of the sort of the interesting lessons that comes down, you, you mentioned the rural electrification uh, push. One of the only large DC lines, uh, direct current lines in the United States, the Pacific Intertie from uh, the Columbia River down into LA, that was uh, built largely with a lot of federal government uh, push behind it. So he was testing the proposition, can you bring private money to this energy uh, transition uh, without the government fully getting behind it? And, you know, that was really a problem. I mean, these are big, you, you mentioned these are regional projects, but I, I, the more I looked at it, the more I think of them as federal projects, or excuse me, you know, national projects. These are big multi-state projects, and I think in some ways at the end of the day require uh, the federal government to be a, a big partner in them to, to make it happen. Well, but I would say it, but I'd say it a little bit differently, Russell. Like, I mean, when we say federal government, I mean, what do we mean, right? When we think about this book, right, we're thinking about how Lamar Alexander played a big role in killing the line. It feels to me like if you're going to do a project like this, you're going to need, you know, a major Washington, D.C. firm to actually unlock, you know, the enthusiasm of the administration, which he was not able to do in this project. Right. Right. No, I mean, the Obama administration talked uh, a, a strong support for this. But, you know, for years, this project sort of languished uh, in Washington. And it wasn't until um, Ernie Moniz became the energy secretary that it got a little momentum. But even then, um, you know, the secretary Moniz wanted to he, you know, he, he was so keenly aware of the politics of this that he wanted to push the project ahead, but not if it would cause a political problem. I think what I'm saying is that there needs to be uh, attention in Washington, D.C. to these projects. It, it's the more I look at them, the more I sort of think about the, the regional transmission that's happened. I'm just not sure if that much can be done or that much can be accomplished without uh, some sustained focus from Washington, D.C. Yeah. And you need not just a big, expensive firm, Jigger, but you need champions in Congress to push this forward. And what you had instead was Senator Alexander, that who Jigger mentioned, who is chairman of Energy and Water Appropriations. Remember, the, he literally holds the purse strings to Tennessee Valley Authority, which had to partner on this project, as, as well as being in the body that confirms the board of the Tennessee Valley Authority. So and he has a visceral reaction to wind. He with his property up in Nantucket, he fought Cape Wind with his property in Tennessee. He has fought any kind of wind development in Tennessee. He doesn't like wind anywhere. And it's like green eggs and ham to him. And I just think that you have to have champions, not just people lobbying for it, but people who believe in it and think that this is of benefit to a great number of people to get something like this done. And, and Russell, you write uh, that this is a quote from from the book. Along the way, he found that the obstacles to a cleaner, cheaper electricity future have more to do with politics than technological limits. So the, another element that derailed this project was in, I believe, 2015, when two senators uh, put forward a bill that would make it hard to build the line. Um, what happened in 2015 that 
cause kind of a political explosion for clean line energy partners? Well, you had senators who uh, introduced a bill that basically said, you know, you need to have every state, you know, if you're going to build an interstate transmission line, you need every state along the way to to sign off on it. I mean, it, it sort of took the concept of a federal backstop um, and, and tore it up and said, no, everyone needs to sign off on this. Um, and, you know, the, the sense I get from from having interviewed, you know, well over 100 people for this book and, and many people involved in the politics of this is that this wasn't about setting policy. This was about slowing the project down enough to essentially kill it. I mean, this is, you know, Washington, uh, to, to the extent that the U.S. senators got involved, you know, they, they just kind of hit the brakes uh, to make sure this project didn't go forward. And, you know, as, as, as anyone involved in energy development knows, you know, if you have investors, investors want, uh, you know, a reasonable time frame to get their money back or to have an opportunity to get their money back. And it seemed like every time, you know, um, Michael Skelly and CleanLine turned around, there was one more hurdle that was put in the way that was just delaying this. And, you know, ultimately, they overcame all of this. You know, they overcame the senators uh, trying to stop them. They overcame a federal lawsuit. There's an incredible uh, a federal court decision uh, that, that sort of confirms what they were trying to do was legal. I mean, every obstacle in their way, they overcame um, from a legal and regulatory uh, and, and political framework, uh, except, you know, uh, it took so long that investors sort of began running out of patience. And, you know, at the end of the day, you had a U.S. senator, Lamar Alexander, get up onto the floor of the Senate making a speech aimed at one particular project and just basically saying, I don't like this project. This project's not going to go forward. Um, oh, and by the way, we should support nukes. And nukes are so much better than uh, th than wind. And he was saying that at a time and he was pointing to Watts Bar, which was a nuclear power plant in Tennessee that had recently been opened after a, what, 25 year hiatus and you know, it started building in the 70s. Um, and, you know, I don't know whether he knew this or not, but at the time, Watts Bar had just had a pretty significant problem, uh, had to go offline and would stay offline for months. So, you know, it's it, 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 this was never a policy debate. Uh, this was always a political struggle to stop a project. Catherine, what does this tell you? I mean, are we ever going to be able to build stuff like this if the politics are, are this bad? Well, so I actually think it does have to come from the federal government and the government. And that may still mean public-private partnership and people like Skelly being able to provide, you know, private investment and private development. But I think the federal gov government, just as they've built highways, just as they've built the rural electric grid, just as they're trying to get broadband to everybody, it needs to be something that is seen as a national priority and that it benefits everybody and make that case and make sure that you have champions in Congress to move it forward rather than just people who want to throw roadblocks. So Russell, was this really about transmission or was it really about wind? The transmission line that Skelly and Cleanline was trying to build was coming into the Tennessee Valley Authority. And one of the big oppositions to it was that the wind, the, the, the all-in cost that was being offered was below two cents per kilowatt hour. And it would have required essentially closing down some of the, the local power plants in Tennessee. The way we build utilities in this country, they're not, they don't just generate electricity, they generate power and they generate patronage and they generate, um, you know, and the Tennessee Valley Authority was sort of looking at this and saying, well, wait, we've got to give up jobs in the Tennessee Valley in order to create jobs in the Oklahoma panhandle. We're, we don't want to do that. And so, you know, it was it was a question of sort of regional self-interest over some sort of national 
um, you know, some sort of national program. And, you know, I, just to respond to Catherine or think about what she's saying, there are lots of possibilities out here that I'm, I'm sort of curious whether we can move ahead with um, to see if we can make these projects work. It, first of all, I should say that one of Michael Skelly's projects, uh, he ultimately had to sell off to Invenergy in Chicago. It looks like it's going to be built. This is a big HVDC line that comes out of southwestern Kansas and goes up to the uh, Illinois-Indiana border. Uh, if it does get built and it's finally cleared a lot of local hurdles in, in Missouri, it will be really interesting to see. And I think a lot of people will be looking at, like, does this work? Um, is there a way to make money off this? And are people benefiting? Because if, you know, if one of these lines gets built, that will create its own momentum. Uh, and then the question is, look, what kind of creativity can we have to try to uh, bring more transmission in. And, and there's a really good reason to bring in more transmission. Uh, all the models sort of show and indicate that we can get, you know, 50, 75% renewable energy at a lower cost than we have today and significantly lower greenhouse gases. Um, so, you know, that to me seems like a pretty good deal, you know, and that's what Skelly was pushing. So getting back to the, this creativity, I mean, we haven't tried utility corridors. We haven't tried, you know, using railroads or highways as a right of way to build along. But I think that backs up Catherine's point, right? I mean, ultimately, when you look at what the deal is that Invenergy got here, they were able to stand on top of Michael Skelly's efforts and basically just pursue the last mile and do it with a lot less risk, right? That, that, that Invenergy is probably not going to take on this level of risk from a standing stop. And so if you're going to build nationwide transmission, it's probably something where the federal government says, you know what, we're going to use the, the corridors that we already have control over, like the federal highway system or rail lines or other things. But it's really something that's led by the federal government and then they invite private sector investors to come in to finish the work. Um, but I, I just I have a hard time seeing another person say, yeah, let's let's embark on an eight year effort to build a new transmission line. Well, you know, one of the reasons that Skelly got into this was to raise this question. I mean, he told me several times that let's let's see if a private company can do this, because if it can't, if a private company can't build transmission, uh, then we need to find another way to do it. You know, this is we're sort of testing the case. Um, but you know, it, you, you bring up federal government using right of ways. It'd be interesting to see if FERC, uh, for instance, could give some sort of bonus return, uh, to utilities to, to build some sort of interstate transmission. There, there are a lot of levers that haven't been tried yet. And, you know, maybe one of the lessons here is that private, you know, private investment only goes so far, uh, and that on big, complex, multi-year projects, uh, there are limitations to what private investment can do, despite the fact that there are you know billions and billions of dollars sitting on the sidelines, wanting to get uh, in, in, in wanting to invest and get involved in some of these projects. Yeah, well, the money needs certainty. All those investors need some certainty. And if you have right now, FERC is looking at um, incentives for transmission and transmission technologies. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes. Okay, so this is a fascinating business story. It's also very much a political story, as we outlined. So now that we have so many candidates talking about 100% carbon-free electricity, 100% renewable electricity, where does transmission play in their plans? And are they taking it as seriously as we need to 
if we want to get to such big penetrations of renewable energy? Well, clearly Jay Inslee, who everyone talks about as being the gold standard of plans, he talked about transmission. He recognized the importance of transmission. Uh, Bernie Sanders picked that up as well. In, in uh, the Sanders plan, there's talk about the need to build a, a high voltage direct current grid. Uh, what we haven't really seen is many details about how to do that. You know, what are the policy ideas to get us from from here to there? Uh, and, and when Bernie Sanders talked about using the Tennessee Valley Authority and the Federal Power Marketing Administrations uh, to push more renewables, you know, my eyes rolled a little because I, you know, I spent uh, the last few years reporting on this. I saw what TVA uh, did to to the Skelly proposal, the way they sort of just pushed it away, even though it was record setting low prices that were they were being offered. It really leads me to question how seriously a lot of this has been thought through by the candidates. Um, and, you know, to me, this reminds me, frankly, of something that I had in, in my book, Superpower, which is the story of um, the Obama, the beginnings of the Obama administration after he had been elected, before he was inaugurated. And, you know, they're right in the middle of this sort of the beginnings of the Great Recession. There's all sorts of financial problems going on. And there was uh, President-elect Obama and, and uh, Biden and several other people got together to talk about, like, what are the how can we stimulate the economy? And there was talk about building these big transmission lines, and eventually it was shelved because they said, well, that, that will just take too long. We can't get the money out quickly enough. So we have seen dis this discussion before. Uh, you know, To me, the question is, is anyone going to start making the investment? Uh, because you know, uh, talk is cheap. Well, I recommend that all of the candidates read your book and anybody else, <laughs> Russell, because Superpower is a really good book, you guys. It's very readable. The stories that you dig into and some of the history is amazing. So it is. I want to give you a big shout out for it. You made transmission really, really fascinating. So good <laughs> job on that. Yeah, I love the book. I, you know, one thing I'm thinking about today is, you know, given that uh, T. Boone Pickin passed away, I mean, that was the plan that everyone coalesced around during the 2008 presidential election as that year's version of the Green New Deal, right? And it didn't make it past the U.S. Congress, right? It makes you question whether, you know, this country can really do big things anymore. Yeah, Jigger, I agree. I've been thinking about the same thing. You know, we have the technology to do this. That's not a question. It can work. We, you know, I think it's pretty been pretty well established that if we can build a grid like this, you have all sorts of benefits, lower greenhouse gas, lower price of power. It would help with potential for some sort of cyber attack on the grid. You know, having big DC lines would help with the black start um, capability to restart the grid. So there are all there. There's so many reasons to do this. But, you know, we're not doing this. And one of the questions I find myself asking is, as a country, do we have it in ourselves to build another intercontinental railroad, to build another interstate highway system? Uh, and if we don't, what are the alternatives we're facing? This is exactly what I wanted to get at in this conversation. And it's something that we touch upon a lot. If you look at the list of major projects that have been attempted or half built over the last decade, uh, you know, Cape Wind, uh, the Vogel nuclear project, um, that Kemper uh, carbon capture and sequestration project, um, a, an attempt at high-speed rail in California, the Northern Pass transmission project here in the Northeast, uh, and then this Clean Line project. Um, do these failures have, they're all, you know, unique projects. They all have uh, their intricacies and idiosyncrasies and, and particular reasons why they failed. But 
Is there something in common? It, has America lost its ability to do great things? Well, I think there, you know, all these projects have slightly different issues. You know, Kemper was a technology issue. That technology just did not work. Um, we certainly in the United States don't seem to be able to build nuclear power plants these days. And part of that, the nuclear pro I mean, that's because we've lost the expertise. Yeah, exactly. Yes. No, no question. Um, look, we, we, when was the last time we built nuclear in this country? We built two, um, you know, Watts Bar, one unit, and we're kind of trying to build Vogel over the last 20, you know, since Three Mile Island, essentially. We, we just don't do it anymore, and we can't expect not to do it and still have that industrial capability. But, you know, you mentioned Cape Wind, and, and Cape Wind's sort of an interesting it's an interesting project to look at because that was an offshore wind project and it faced all sorts of legal hurdles and lots of rich people who live in Nantucket fought it. And, and it, you know, it, I think it went on for 17 years before it died. And then within a year after Cape Wind's death, we're going through this massive renaissance of offshore wind now in the United States. And I think it's an, and it didn't take sort of federal government involvement. I mean, the, the, the key difference really, there are a couple of key differences. One, technology changed and improved a little so you could build the turbines further out so you didn't have a view shed issue. But I would argue also that there was a very subtle, um, there, there was a very subtle change that happened with offshore wind. And that was that the offshore developers realized that they had some leverage with the state houses. And they could go to the state houses and say, hey, you know, that, that dilapidated port that's hemorrhaging jobs, we want to invest in there. We want to turn it into a big um, area to supply uh, this new industry. And so they were able to find uh, projects that the, the state governments wanted to do to, to, you know, to, to bring their ports back. And that was, you know, by, by giving them that, they were able to get uh, what they wanted, which was the permission to, 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 to build offshore. And so to me, one of the interesting questions is what is, you know, what's the lever that, Law, transmission builders have? have? Is there just some lever they haven't discovered yet or haven't utilized yet that they can go to the local governments and instead of facing opposition, be welcomed? Uh, and, you know, that's sort of an interesting lesson from Cape Wind, I think. Yeah, I'd, I'd push back a little bit. I think that these offshore wind projects are, are working really closely with the federal government and it's not clear that they actually are getting as much traction as one would have thought, right? I mean, the most recent uh, wind project that got delays in their federal permits, uh, such that they'll probably miss their PTC window. Um, I, I I still think this is going to be a heavy road to hoe. I think the the one trick that the transmission line guys have, which they haven't pulled the trigger on, but I think they probably will going forward, is burying all the transmission lines. I do think that you know, paying the 50% premium for burying the lines may actually save people a lot of heartache. I've been waiting for Elon Musk uh, to, to turn the boring company into some sort of underground uh, transmission line uh, company. <laughs> yeah. uh, it would be interesting. So final question on this. Russell, did you come out of this project feeling optimistic, pessimistic, somewhere in between? Somewhere in between. Um, I was hugely uh, inspired by... The, the just the level of dedication that uh, Skelly and you know the dozens and hundreds of people who worked at Clean Line had to 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 make these projects. I mean, these were people who understood what was going on with climate, who understood the challenges, and were going into work every day, sort of saying, "All right, what obstacles do we have in our way, and how do we overcome them?" 
And to me, you know, that was a really, you know, kind of fascinating story and great sign as to how do you build a, how do you build an energy company that's going to try to tackle some of the problems that we have and to take advantage of them. And, you know, maybe Skelly, this one didn't work, but uh, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic that there are other people who are following suit uh, who will, who will figure this out and build some of the infrastructure that we need to, uh, to make this energy transition happen. Well, the book we've been talking about is called Superpower, One Man's Quest to Transform American Energy. It is by Russell Gold. And uh, stay with us because Russell's going to stick around for the conversation about fracking and uh, about climate hope and climate nihilism. So stay tuned. The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow sells the most inverters in the world. But being the leader in volume doesn't just mean focusing on quantity. It means focusing on quality. And it does that by building trust. SunGrow employs people like Nick Velcho, an applications engineering manager. Nick's job is to make sure projects are designed expertly and working at peak performance. The job takes deep technical expertise and attention to detail, which Nick honed in the military. Yeah, that's true. Um, I served for six years um, in the Navy as a fire controlman. Um, And contrary to how that sounds, um, a fire controlman is actually a weapons specialist um, and radar technician. Nick underwent years of intense advanced electronics training in the Navy, and then he took that expertise to the solar industry, where he's worked for over a decade servicing the power electronics that make PV projects operate their very best. Keeping those SunGrow inverters running in tip-top shape, it's not unlike keeping everything running smoothly in the military. When, when you're in the military and you're working on the piece of equipment that you've been assigned to, whether it's an airplane, an engine, a weapon system, or even a rifle for that matter, you have to know it intimately and you have to know um, every in and out to the point where when it's not working the way that it should, you know it almost without having to diagnose it. Military professionals have been trained that way. We're, we're on time. You know, we, uh, we work hard, uh, we see things through to completion. There's rarely ever loose ends or open items that are left on an action item list. So from that aspect, when it comes to servicing equipment, um, veterans are really well positioned to contribute not only positively, um, but to kind of uh, shift the momentum in how service works. When you use SunGrow inverters for your solar or storage project, You aren't just getting the best equipment. You're getting support from the hardest working, disciplined, and most passionate people on the planet. The fulfillment and and the satisfaction that I get from my job every day, um, knowing that I'm contributing to a a positive, sustainable solution with a company like SunGrow um, is is really unbeatable. So I, I feel very lucky. And customers are lucky to have a guy like Nick keeping watch over their solar power plants. SunGrow will be showing off its inverters at Solar Power International in Salt Lake this September. Go check out the technology and meet the team at booth 2211 or click on over to sungrowpower.com. Let's shift our conversation about difficult infrastructure choices over to fracking. Speaking of difficult choices, uh, in the aftermath of last week's Climate Town Hall, we got more clarity on the positions of leading candidates. And uh, we're going to devote a special episode next week to the nuances of that seven-hour extravaganza, the framing, the differences in candidates, and, and how it may play out for the rest of the campaign. But for now, we're zeroing in on one piece, fracking. Elizabeth Warren came out and said 
she would ban fracking on day one of her administration and also divest from nuclear, Uh, not just avoid new plants, but actually work to close down existing plants that are providing carbon-free electricity right now. Bernie Sanders uh, basically thinks we should do the same thing. And I believe a handful of other candidates, maybe seven, um, a few of those candidates have dropped off. But about around seven candidates have said that they support a ban on fracking. So what do we make of this posturing? Is this policy we should take seriously or just uh, political campaigning red meat for liberals? Um, Catherine, to you first, how serious are Warren and Sanders and some of the other lower tier candidates about banning fracking? Like when they say this, do you take them seriously? Well, they may be serious when they say it. I think... um There's so much nuance in a discussion about fracking and how to frame it. Um, There are a few things that pop into my head. One is just from a purely political standpoint, why would you alienate Pennsylvania right off the bat? It's like, seems like a state you really got to get. And so that's just purely political, you know, voting issues. Um, But there are just so many other issues on national security, like what happens, you know, are Russia and Saudi Arabia then going to fill the gap, the economics, I know we talked about um, in the last segment, that if the cost of natural gas goes up, that that might spur transmission, it also may prevent coal from not going offline fast enough. Uh, So there, there are all these other very nuanced discussions that have to do with economics and environmental impact when you say something so broad um, as banning fracking. Yeah, I thought it was one of the dumbest statements I'd seen in a very long time. So I think, you know, banning fracking is really, really dumb. It's sort of, And the thing is, is that it just comes at it from the wrong perspective, right? Like, it's sort of like saying, we're going to prevent migrants from coming over the border um, by building a wall, right? No, you prevent migrants from coming over the border by dealing with what's causing them to leave their homes in Honduras, Right. And so if you wanted to ban fracking, you would actually ban the use of natural gas. So if you would have cities say no more natural gas connections or you wanted to ban gasoline, you'd say, you know, you wouldn't shut down oil drilling. You'd say we'd like to ban internal combustion engine cars from being sold in the United States. Right. Like that's how you solve that problem. You don't solve it by banning fracking. Or put back in place the methane regulation, which can do far more right now for the environment than banning fracking. So what are the consequences then, Russell? Let's say uh, President Warren came in and attempted to ban fracking. There seems to be two issues. One is uh, you'd probably see carbon dioxide emissions go up because natural gas has played a a fairly strong role in reducing our carbon emissions in recent years. And uh, you'd increase imports of oil and gas as well. Uh, Robert Rapier, writing in Forbes, actually wrote a really great piece showing how California, which is largely not benefited from the fracking boom, uh, has had to import a lot more uh, oil and gas despite policies to attempt to reduce um, consumption of oil and gas. And so you you will inevitably have this imbalance. So how do you think of the consequences if uh, a candidate were to come in and attempt this uh, sweeping ban on fracking, Russell? Well, I mean, it's a little surprising to me that Senator Warren from Massachusetts hasn't absorbed the lessons of Vermont Yankee uh, just to just to her north a little bit better. You know, they closed down that when they closed down Vermont Yankee, the nuclear plant. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, what rushed in, you know, was was more coal and, and greenhouse gas or fossil fuels. Greenhouse gas emissions went up. I mean, that that's what would happen if you banned fracking. 
Um, the price of gas would increase inevitably. Um, oil production would go way down. Uh, you know, we would have more greenhouse gases because, look, this is the sort of the case I made in the boom. My book from 2014 was that natural gas is helping reduce greenhouse gases. It's knocking coal off the grid, and that has only continued to happen. And if you ban fracking, that would just reverse. It's I, I'm I'm honestly struggling to understand this as a policy. And, and, and the only way I can make sense of it is this is sort of pure pandering um, to to the Democratic base. Um, getting back to something that Catherine said before, you know, yes, it's sort of an odd to be talking about this when you need to win Pennsylvania, except to remember that there are a lot of votes to be picked up in the Philadelphia suburbs. And there's no fracking or fracking jobs anywhere near Philadelphia. So, I mean, I guess this is just a classic, uh, you know, uh, trying to get uh, votes out of the uh, the primary. Yeah. I mean, it's not serious policy for sure. But what what I struggle with is why not just say, let's let's buy out the coal industry. That's actually like a serious policy proposal that people have put forward. Let's just like close down coal plants, buy out coal mining companies and, you know, uh, try to find people new work. That seems to be. I mean, that's difficult. Um, it would face a lot of resistance, but it's a little bit more serious than saying let's ban fracking when you're, when you're talking about you know climate and environmental policy. Well, I so I would I'd say it's a little bit different. I mean, to suggest that the people saying that we should ban fracking have tied the two together is laughable. Um, I think that in general they're talking about fracking from the perspective of a whole bunch of people who just think that. Fracking gets into the groundwater and comes out of your sink and, you know, then then you light the water coming out of your sink on fire and all the things that, you know, Josh Fox put in his movie. And I, I, I'm not, I don't even think they've thought through the implications of losing, you know, 10 million barrels a day of oil production and what that would do to our relationships with Russia and, you know, Saudi Arabia and China and other places. Um, and so I just think that the whole thing wasn't thought through at all. What bothers me is that there's no space to have a nuanced position on this. So the candidates who say, oh, I support, uh, you know, methane regulations, we, we need natural gas, here are some regulatory constraints I might put on the industry, they get slammed by the liberal base and by environmental activists. And there's very little space to have a nuanced position on this. Um, obviously, this is just a problem in politics generally, so it's no surprise. But I don't see candidates really able to put forward, you know, sensible policy on this. You're either for or against it. I would argue a lot of that, a lot of the potential for a nuanced argument about this has been squandered over the last few years. I mean, I went back and read an essay I wrote in the Wall Street Journal in April 2014, um, talking about sort of how to do fracking right, you know, how to do it in, in a responsible way. And the first rule that I rolled out was to fix the leaks. Um, I quoted Hal Harvey in the article saying, if you want to argue that gas is part of the climate solution, you have to deal with methane leakage. Well, it's five years later, more than five years later, and we're still talking about methane leakage. Um, we, we've lost an opportunity to to sort of elevate gas as as a, a fuel that makes you know sense in all different uh, ways, including climate. And so I think that's opened the door for the you know the Elizabeth Warrens and the Kamala Harris's and and others to sort of point the finger at fracking and just say you know this is bad and we need to stop it. 
The, the industry's lost an opportunity here. No, that's exactly right. I mean, that you deal with this at the use of natural gas case, not at the production of natural gas. And I think, and I think you know, frankly, like in my mind, in 2050, we'll still have 400 gigawatts of natural gas. We just won't be using the plants to make power. They'll just be backup that might be used one or two or three percent of the year. But my sense is, is that right now that is the lowest cost way of getting to a very high penetration renewable energy grid is to have these resources there as backup and you just pay them capacity payments. And so so it, it does feel like um, they just missed the opportunity around, you know, actually having this argument in a more productive and, you know, serious way. Well, I also think there are a lot of market-based uh, approaches that you can take. So I work on distributed energy resources and non-wires alternatives. And a lot of utilities, their modeling just always says they need to build a new natural gas plant, no matter uh, what you know. the input shows that in the end, that's all you need. And that's what they try to do. And, you know, I go from state to state arguing, no, let's look at all the resources. Let's look at how you can combine distributed energy resources, non-wireless alternatives and all that. So taking a market approach and allowing everything to compete will then force natural gas to be you know, to either retire, not get built, or, you know, become less competitive in some way. But approaching it in that mechanism, to me, seems like it, definitely it's more complicated to explain that. But that's where you get a lot of the best results. And what about this focus on nuclear as well? Uh, again, Elizabeth Warren saying, I don't just want to avoid building new nuclear plants. I want to start phasing out existing nuclear plants. What was your reaction to that, Jigger? I mean, that was the biggest miss of the entire comment, right? Fracking is one thing, right? It's like red meat to the base. But on the nuclear side, for those people who are actually fighting to pass 100% clean energy bills at the state level, they're only able to do it through some of the votes from the nuclear industry, right? That's how you get bipartisan support for some of these things. And the notion that we should actually be actively talking about shutting down existing nuclear plants, let alone talking about closing the door on new nuclear uh, designs like New Scale and others that are starting to finally get constructed. And I think New Scale's got their plant in Idaho that's getting constructed is crazy, right? I mean, that is the way that you get the coalitions built to pass these laws in the next five or six states. So I just think that you can have a nuanced conversation about climate change without picking technology with just by saying we need clean energy goals, we need zero emission goals, we need to do adaptation, we need to do all these things without saying exactly what the technologies are you're going to use. So I just I just think it when you when you throw things out there like that, it's whether it's on the natural gas side or on the nuclear side, you really are putting yourself in a box. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, let's let's go to our last topic, a bit of media criticism and uh, some self-reflection on our own levels of hope and despair. Let's put our optimism to the test. This week, Twitter was on fire with reaction to Jonathan Franzen's latest piece in The New Yorker. Franzen is a really popular and talented author and uh, magazine contributor, and he wrote this piece in the latest edition of The New Yorker called What If We Stopped Pretending? And the subhead is The Climate Apocalypse is Coming to prepare for it, we need to admit we can't prevent it. And oh boy, did that get people pissed off. Uh, Franzen isn't arguing that we shouldn't do anything about climate change. He's merely saying 
we are screwed and we have to change our expectations to accept some level of doom. Um, if we're too hopeful, we're just going to crush the collective spirit of humanity when we don't live up to our expectations. It's worth a discussion on this because it does raise some questions about how he interpreted the science and whether being in a you know privileged position allows him to shrug his shoulders at the problem. Um, okay, quick reactions around the horn. How did you interpret this piece? Catherine, you first. Yeah, so everybody knows I'm an optimist. Um, and I don't think that we shouldn't be sad or worried or concerned or believe this is a crisis. But the whole nihilism, like, oh, we're just, we can't do anything, so why bother, really, really rubbed me the wrong way. I wasn't quite sure why they allowed him to publish the piece. It was just so poorly written. I mean, you've been an editor for so long, would you have allowed it to be published in the way that it was published? He contradicted himself two or three times where he said, well, we shouldn't do anything, but if we do stuff and it prevents one hurricane, then maybe it was worth it. I'm like, that's just intellectually inconsistent. It just feels like when like, I was commenting on Lincoln and slavery in my eighth grade essay class, and I published something in Illinois History Magazine, like (laughs) they probably should have prevented me from doing that, right? I mean, like it just like he had no business talking about it. He didn't actually understand what he was talking about. And if he wanted to make it a personal essay, he should have done that. But like like he was talking about his own models. What are you talking about your own models? Well, he does modeling with two L's too. <laughs> I just like God. But I mean like I mean you and Russell obviously are more adept at what happens in these rooms than I am, but like I don't even know how it got published. Yeah, I have some thoughts on that. Uh, but first, Russell, I want to get your your reaction to the piece. Like when you read it, how how did you feel about it? Uh, well, I had a very very strong reaction. So first of all, Jigger, you just brought up this whole you know Jonathan Franzen saying he's he did a thousand modeling scenarios in his head and not one stayed under two degrees. You know that reminded me of Doctor Strange in the Avengers Endgame, where he's talking about I've run through this a thousand times and we can't we can't win. You know Jonathan Franzen is no. You know, Benedict Cumberbatch. And I'm not sure why he was trying to be Benedict Cumberbatch. But the other thing is that he ends up right at the end of this essay basically saying, look, you know, we can't win this, so we might as well tend to our own gardens. I mean, he very literally says the kind of the old Voltaire line, go tend to your own gardens, and talks about this community garden he has in Santa Cruz or works with. And my reaction was this. Look, this is not... This is not about feeling good by turning your AC down or putting solar panels on your roof. That that's not what this is about. You know, it's not about turning your AC down. The question is, can the global economy build a super efficient air conditioner so that people in India and Indonesia and Bangladesh, you know, can have some comfort as the earth gets more sweltering? This is this is a systems problem. This is a very large problem and he was sort of thinking very small and I, I just think it was it was he he allowed himself to be engulfed in pessimism, but he's not the only one. I mean, look at look at the books that have come out on climate change in the last few years. Here are their titles: The Sixth Extinction, Losing Earth, The Uninhabitable Earth. There's a lot of pessimism going around. People, we need to have a little more optimism. Or even if we don't have optimism, we need to have political willpower, and we need to have 
courage to do something. I mean, it, it you can be you can understand that things are bad and still act. Yeah. And, and, and there's this really weird perception about this two degree C mark. He says, like, if we go over two degree C, then. Um, the, you know, the, here's what's going to happen to the world and it's going to be, you know, a torturous hellscape. And like, there's a big difference between two and a half degrees Celsius and two degrees Celsius and two degrees Celsius and three degrees Celsius. And, you know, just because we may go over two degrees C, this sort of arbitrary mark, um, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be trying to do everything that we can. And he's sort of implying in the piece that, uh, well, you know, we're going to hit this mark that everyone says is dangerous in terms of temperature rise. So, so get ready to uh, experience like a dismal hellscape. And a, a lot of scientists pushed back and said, like, there's a big difference between, again, keeping temperature rise to two degrees C and letting it go to two and a half degrees C. And so I think that's really important to to remember. He sort of lays out this arbitrary temperature mark and creates this like horrible sense of pessimism around that. Right. But I just don't understand why we're talking about the substance of something that this guy had no like real qualifications to write. I mean, he compares the climate denial funded by the fossil fuel industry and embraced by the GOP to the Green New Deal. And Jigger, to answer your question, why would, uh, you know, why would David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, allow Jonathan Franzen to write about climate change? Because it got all of us unhappy and angry and we're talking about it. And, you know, this is an attention economy. You know, from a from a publishing perspective, uh, the, he's probably patting himself on the back and saying this was a success. Jonathan, what do you have next? What's your next essay on climate change? So unfortunately, we're sort of feeding into it. Well, if anyone's angry about it and they don't want to read Jonathan Franzen, I've got a writer who you can read, and that is Russell Gold. So go pick up Superpower and The Boom. Uh, that's some good reading for you. All right. Well, let's uh, wrap up and give our free electrons. Uh, Jigger, what is your free electron this week? Well, I think I mentioned it a little bit today, which was the, you know, that T. Boone Pickens passed away yesterday. And I had a extraordinary amount of time with him from 2008 to 2011 um, in, you know, helping him with his Pickens plan. And I just found the guy to be, you know, just an amazing, amazing individual. And, you know, he certainly has a lot of, uh, you know, things that people don't like about him in his past. But um, I just think he was an amazing individual. And I think even today, I think the Pickens plan would have been a great thing for us all to have passed and, you know, implemented in the, in the United States. You know what I love about T. Boone Pickens is that he lost so much money on wind, but he still was a big believer in it. And he was really honest about what he did wrong in his wind venture. And, uh, you know, he talked publicly about the struggles um, developing wind and why he did it poorly. And so I, I thought that I, I really appreciated that. Yeah, I agree. I thought he was great. He's a, he was a wickedly smart guy and like crazy, crazy disarming with his folksy style, but uh, you know, wickedly smart guy. He and Jim, he and Jim Rogers kind of cut out of the same cloth. <laughs> Catherine, what's yours? Yeah, so here's something y'all can be doing uh, when you're when you pull yourself out of your depression. Um, go and submit comments to Congress. So Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, it's they're due fri this Friday, so that's not much time. But they're looking for comments on climate change proposals, and then the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis in the House has put out a request for information. Those aren't due till November 22nd, and people should go and submit ideas. And they can be big ideas, or they can be small ideas, incremental ideas, like, hey, we could really use this to get something out the door. So um, please, everybody engage. They want to hear from everyone and they want to build the record so they can put together some really decent climate policy. Russell, what's your free electron? 
You know, I just finished last week uh, a book on Oklahoma City by Sam Anderson called Boomtown, and it was an absolute joy of a book. I mean, he Oklahoma, for anyone who's interested in energy in the United States, there's sort of this weird attraction to Oklahoma City. You know, it's where some of the crazier fossil fuel ideas come out of. And, you know, th- this was all about the Oklahoma City thunder, the energy people, the uh, the civil rights leaders, the Flaming Lips, this great band that came out of Oklahoma City. It's It was just it was so much fun to read. And I would strongly recommend it to anyone. In fact, you can go buy my my book, The Boom, and Sam Anderson's book, Boom Town. It's a nice, nice pair. Good, good fall reading lineup for you. Uh, I know one thing that you won't be reading, and that is Think Progress. I wanted to give a little RIP to the liberal uh, blog, Think Progress, that was run out of the Center for American Progress. I worked at Climate Progress for a couple of years, way back in 2011 and 2012. Um, So Think Progress was this sort of experimental journalism site that was an independent organization within the Center for American Progress. I was a big reader of Climate Progress, which was at the time run independently from Think Progress by uh, Joe Rome. That got integrated into Think Progress, and then they ballooned substantially um, over the years, um, largely driven by Facebook traffic. And then when Facebook changed their algorithms and advertisers pulled back, Think Progress found themselves in the position that a lot of others did. And they had this massive $3 million revenue shortfall and, you know, donors wouldn't keep up the the site. So they lost, um, they, they shut down recently. Um, interestingly, like I, I went there and I kind of immediately felt uncomfortable. I realized like I was a big fan of climate progress. I wanted to write about climate science and politics, but it made me realize like <laughs> I was not on that left end of the spectrum. And so I always kind of inherently felt uncomfortable with the style of journalism they were doing there and the politics of the place. But it was a really valuable experience for me. And, and I thought that Climate Progress was at the time one of the more interesting um, sites that was covering um, you know the consequences of, of climate change. So I think Climate Progress actually does still have, as far as I understand it, support from donors at the Center for American Progress. So it may actually live on its own again, even though Think Progress is shut down. Joe Rome may get his his blog back. We'll see what happens there. But an interesting saga for one of the pioneering uh, left-leaning political websites. That is going to wrap the show. The Energy Gang is produced by Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio. The show is made by me and our producer, Daniel Waldorf. Daniel, welcome to the team. You can find links to all the resources we talked about in the show notes, including to both of Russell's books. And for more reporting on these topics, get GTM's iOS news app or sign up for the newsletter at greentechmedia.com newsletters. Hit us up on social media with any comments, questions, suggestions. What do we get right and wrong? We love to hear from you. And again, I always say it, your commentary does inform the show. Pass uh, this podcast on to someone who you think would like it and pat yourself on the back for giving yourself the intellectual tools to advance the clean energy transition. I'm Stephen Lacey with Catherine Hamilton, Jigger Shaw, and Russell Gold. This is The Energy Gang. We'll catch you next week.